It is that which God honors. It is that which is the basis of true greatness. It is that which Jesus said is to distinguish his people in this world. But my friend, I want to tell you, it is also that which is conspicuous by its absence in the body of Christ and maybe in your life as well. What is the it that I am addressing? Well, in a word, it is humility. I want you to know that God honors humility. God blesses humility. Humility is a blessing to God. God will honor and bless the humble one. Let me remind you, and I know that this is just a reminder, of a handful of scriptures that <clears throat> support the claims that I have just made. A handful of many more, I realize, but let me remind you of these precious few. Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 16, 18 and 19 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. It is better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide spoil with the proud. Proverbs 18, 12 says, Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. Proverbs 29, 23 says, A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Proverbs 15, 33 says, The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom, and before honor comes humility. Just a few of many references that document the word of God on the subject matter of humility. God honors humility. God blesses the humble person. That's what we are going to see in our passage of Scripture this morning. We've seen references to the fact of God's honoring of humility. I just want to bring one quick example. I wish I could give you four, five, six, or seven, but time will not permit. So I've shrunk it down to, to one example which fits in my mind. If God would honor this man, and he did, then there is no humble person who is off limits. All will be honored by God. I'm going to read from 2 Chronicles chapter 33. Don't turn there. That's just the scriptural reference. Listen as I read from portions of this chapter. I'm going to be looking at 
a wicked individual, a king of the southern kingdom of Judah. His name was Manasseh. His father was Hezekiah. Hezekiah destroyed the high places and the altars of idolatry, of paganism. Hezekiah destroyed them all. But his son Manasseh, when he attained to the throne, he rebuilt every one of them. He put them back in their place. And not only that, He instituted altars which never were before in the courts of the house of God. And even in the house of the Lord, he carved an image and placed it in the house of God. The Word of God tells us about this wicked man. And he made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. And he practiced witchcraft and used divination and practiced sorcery and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. This was a mess of a man who was leading God's people. The Word of God tells us And he spoke to Manasseh and he spoke to his people, but listen to this, they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them and they captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with bronze chains and brought him to Babylon. Listen to this. And when he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. When he prayed to him, he was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. That was a game changer. That was a life changer for Manasseh when he saw in all of his wickedness when he turned from that and humbled himself that God exalted him and brought him back. Then he knew the Lord was God. My friend, God honors humility. Humility is a blessing to God and God will bless the man or the woman who walks humbly before him. I want you to turn to our passage of scriptures found in Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 20. I'm going to save my time and not read through this passage of scripture except as we come to it, point by point, Matthew chapter 20, beginning at verse 20. As we look at this passage of scripture, I want you to understand my heart. I want you to understand the thing that I've been praying about on your behalf, as we open this section of God's Word together, that for you to live your life, the rest of the days of your life to the very last day you exist on this planet in an ever-increasing humility, not a humility that you know is borne out by the Word of God, but a humility that increases and increases all the days of your life. And as we look at this passage of Scripture, you need to understand that which the disciples did not know, that which Jesus was doing. He was saving them from the confusion, the error of their way regarding this issue of greatness in the kingdom. 
Now, let me just say a word that I don't have time to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. The, the starting problem with some of you is you are not even where the disciples are as we join them in this passage of Scripture. Some of you have been steered clear from the very concept of kingdom greatness because of the prosperity gospel and the heretics that promote that, and they have scared you straight away from the idea that you would ever even think about being great in the kingdom of heaven. Well, child of God, I want to wake you up to the reality of this word. Jesus Christ never accosted these disciples for their pursuit, their desire, their, their literal, their craving for greatness. He was aiding and abetting them and how they could truly be great. But in so doing, he had to take care of some errors of their thinking. So he provides for these disciples three corrective insights regarding greatness in the kingdom of heaven. So what we're going to see today, Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 20 down to verse 28, three corrective insights regarding greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Now, on the flip side, some of you are thinking, whatever greatness is, I'm quite certain of this. I could never attain to it. My friend, I want to tell you, you are so very wrong. I want you to know that kingdom greatness is right in your grasp, but we're going to have to understand and meticulously apply the truth of this passage of Scripture in all the days of our life. Look at our text, Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 20. We're going to see our first of three corrective insights. What is it? Here it is, number one. Kingdom greatness is the result of drinking the cup of Christ. Did you get that, my friend? Kingdom greatness is the result of drinking the cup of Christ. Look at Matthew chapter 20 and verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right, and one on your left. Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you are asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they said, we are able. Kingdom greatness is the result of drinking the cup of Christ. Now, as we very hastily examine verses 20 to 22, we're going to see two things here. First of all, the craving for greatness, and then their confusion about greatness. Now, the context, I wish I had time to really set that up, beginning in chapter 19 with the rich young ruler when he comes to Christ and all the stuff that Jesus said from that point forward. It really sets up this opportunity where Salome, the mother of James and John, Jesus' earthly aunt, James and John were his earthly cousins. It's a power play now. Look in uh, the previous verses, verses 17 to 19. This is the apex of the immediately preceding context that 
put this thing in order that made it happen. And Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem and he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves. And on the way he said to them, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered up to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and he will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. So they get it. Now's the time. If, if the greatest of the great is to be ours, we've got to strike now for the hour is late. And so they concoct this plan to come to him and have him to command that those places would be theirs. That's the context. But we, but we see the craving of this greatness and, and now they seize their opportunity. What do they do? But they come to Jesus Christ. They're making a request. And Jesus says, what do you wish? And then we see her wish. Command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit, the one on your right and the one on your left. We see very simply the content of their request. It is not to be great in the kingdom. It is to be the greatest of the great. To sit at the right, to sit at the left. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus told all of those disciples, when Peter asked, Lord, we've left everything to follow you, what will there be for us? Jesus told them that they would, each one of them, sit on a throne judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So they knew greatness was theirs, but that was not enough. They wanted to be the greatest of the great on the right and on the left of Jesus Christ for all eternity, a place of greatest prominence right there by the Lord. This is extremely hypothetical. But if Patrick Mahomes were here as our guest in chapel today, and he had just the opportunity, hypothetically, to thank us at Midwestern for being uh, an anchor, an institution in Missouri for Southern Baptists and causing the, cry, the cause of Christ to go forward from this place, how hypothetical is that? And then at the end of our chapel, Patrick would come up here, and we would all take a group photo. This is a place of sincerity and candor, my friend. Where would you want to be in that photo? How about to the right and to the left of Patrick Mahomes? This photo opportunity for a lifetime. You'd want to be right there so close that you could not drive a $100 million Patrick Mahomes check between your shoulder and his. You'd want to be right there. And that's the ambition of the disciples times a billion. By Christ, through all eternity, the greatest of the great on his right hand and on his left. Jesus is going to instruct them as to how this could be done. But I want to warn you right now, even when they receive this insight, they are going to be marked by immediate failure. Within a week... When they are in the city of Jerusalem and Jesus is taking them up to the upper room, that time when he'd been so looking forward to sharing and spending with the disciples, you know what they're going to be found doing? On the way to the upper room, 
They are going to be arguing among themselves as to which of them is the greatest among them. If they would take this instruction to their hearts, that would have quelled that conversation. But instead, that was a ministry-long debate they had among themselves as to which of them was the greatest. And they're having that argument once again to the upper room. And when they get there, they have the opportunity of a lifetime because they're all alone in the upper room and there's a basin of water there, but if there is no house servant to wash their feet. And not one of them has the resident humility to stoop and wash the feet of one another. Not even the feet of Jesus Christ who is about to die for them and they will not even wash his feet. Boy, it's appalling. For these Jews and their understanding of the Old Testament and the maturity of that understanding that could now be applied on this occasion, and they absolutely missed it. Well, what are some of the things that are just so basic that they could have known as of the Old Testament that they were set to surely not fail? What was that 40-year time period of the wilderness wanderings as we call it? Listen to Moses as he was recounting that period of 40 years. Moses writes this, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, And you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that He might, what? Humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. That was the Old Testament. That was the ABCs. That's what they were founded on. That's what they knew. And they could not apply that seminal knowledge with the intensive theological upgrade Jesus gave them regarding kingdom greatness. And now here they had the opulent opportunity of a lifetime to wash the feet of Jesus Christ before He suffered to bring them salvation. And they missed that opportunity. Well, Jesus has quite a task in front of Him to take these clueless disciples and tune them in about kingdom greatness. And their confusion was so very great. Look at our text again, Matthew chapter 20. What do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, the one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus said, you do not know what you were asking for. Jesus points out, he makes it explicit, you have no idea what you are asking for. And that had to seem strange to them. We know exactly what we're asking for. Not just to be great, but to be on the right and on the left. Where's the confusion? We know exactly what we are asking for. But their confusion was simply this. They were separating greatness in the kingdom from drinking the cup of Christ. 
So notice what Jesus tells them. Look at our text, verse 22. You do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they said to him, we are able to be great in the kingdom. Jesus helps them connect the dots. It's going to take humility. Humility to drink the cup that I'm about to drink. Are you able to drink that? That's what he brings to them. They must not be confused about that point. They've got to bring that together. And Jesus forces them to bring that together. Kingdom greatness is the result of drinking the cup. And they say, yes, we are able. For the sake of time, I'm going to need to move on. Our first corrective insight is simply this. Kingdom greatness is the result of drinking the cup of Christ. It was available to them. It's available to us. But listen to me, child of God. There is no way that that comes our way unless we are able, unless we are found drinking the cup of Christ, the cup of Christ's suffering, the cup of Christ's affliction. That is the only way to greatness. And he gives them the second corrective insight in verse 23. Kingdom greatness has been determined by the Father. Did you get that? Kingdom greatness. This isn't an aberration. This isn't fiction. This isn't mythology. Kingdom greatness has been determined by the Father. Verse 23. And he said to them, my cup you shall drink. Stop right there. My cup you shall drink. What is, what is the implication of what he is just saying? Oh, you are going to be great in the kingdom. You're not going to miss the cup. You say you're able and I'm telling you, you will drink that cup. But then he goes to the epitome of their request. Look at verse 23. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're doing. You want me to command that it will be so. I cannot command that it will be so. It's not mine to give. Notice his instruction, verse 23. This is so very good. Wish we had time to develop these three things, but I don't. We'll have to hit them quickly. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Oh man, greatness. They should have understood that really from as far back as what we know is Matthew chapter 5, right? The Sermon on the Mount. What did Jesus say? And the final one of those beatitude statements in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecute the prophets who were before you. Jesus is just authenticating what he's already said to them about kingdom greatness. It is coming their way. 
They will drink that cup and they will know throughout eternity how great they truly are, how great they were in the annals of time. But to be number one and number two, it's not mine to give. You've got to drink the cup for that to be a personal reality for you. Look at verse 23 at the end. He says, the it, he's talking about to the right and to the left, this cup that they have to drink, that uh, he tells them they will drink. He says, it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. Listen to me, child of God. The difficulties of the days of your life in Christ Jesus, the things that you suffer, we miss it so very commonly when we separate these things from a loving, sovereign God. Don't do that. Fix this together. Notice what Jesus is telling them. When all the hardships come their way, hardships that will literally steal their life away from them, this is what Jesus Christ says, that is my cup. It's my cup for you, which you will drink. And I want you to know it has been prepared not by a world who hates you. It has been prepared by my Father. It's a has-been-prepared reality. It's not in the making. God, your Father, is not there trying to figure it out. It is a settled thing. It has already been prepared by my Father. But would you notice this? Look at verse 23. It is, look at this, amazingly, it is for those, for whom this cup, a cup of suffering, which the Father has already prepared, He's prepared it for you. The cup of your sufferings, your sufferings by being a follower of Christ. This is God's grace to you, up close and personal. Your loving heavenly Father has mentored and tailored and provided oversight into every difficulty you will ever suffer for His name's sake. It is God's grace to you, up close and personal. Oh, listen, what a difference this makes when we settle this, when we understand this. Recall the Lord, Matthew chapter 11, where most of his miracles were done. He goes to the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida. He says, woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, if the miracles had been done in you, which had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I've got to tell you, it'll be more tolerable for the land of Tyre and Sidon than it will be for you in the day of judgment. He was warning them. He was reproaching them for the miracles that he had done. And yet they had met him only with the sternness of rejection. And he went on to Capernaum and said the same thing. If the miracles had been done, in the land of Sodom, which had been done in you, they would exist to this day 
But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom than it will be for you in the day of judgment. He was reproaching them for their rejection of him. He was warning them while there was still time for them to repent. And in the midst of that, before he went on to provide that invitation, right there, he looked up and he said, I praise thee, Father, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and intelligent, but thou hast revealed them to babes. Yes, Father, for it was well-pleasing in thy sight. Right there in the sternness of hostility, Jesus could lovingly warn them before it was eternally too late when he realized this was just a part of the cup of his sufferings to be rejected by them. And he was freely drinking of that cup as he brought praise to the Father. He did not miss the work of the Father in his days of suffering. My friend, are you guilty of that? Are you one of these air-headed Christians who go around and are moping and complaining, God, how could you allow this to come my way? God, how could you do this to me? How could you ever let me go through this? You're not seeing your cup as Jesus saw it, you're not seeing his cup, which he has prepared for you as his grace to you up close and personal. You do not know what the disciples did not know, but they needed to learn very quickly. Let's look on three corrective insights. What have we seen? First of all, Kingdom greatness is the result of drinking the cup. Kingdom greatness has been determined by the Father. Thirdly, kingdom greatness is equal to the extent of humble service. Kingdom greatness is equivalent to the extent of humble service. You want to be greatest in the kingdom? Then you serve the greatest. That's where we're going. Look at verse 24. I find this interesting. And hearing this, what is, what is the this that was heard? Seeing James and John with their mama coming to Jesus bidding him to command that they would be the greatest. They saw that and they were livid. They were indignant at the two. Why? Because they were trying to weasel them out of the seats they wanted for themselves. But I want you to know Jesus was not indignant at the two. He was not indignant at the ten. He just patiently instructed them in the ways of truth. What a gracious, glorious thing that was. Jesus just kept right on the mark. Just, you're, you're ignorant. You don't get it. I've got more to say to you. You haven't heard it all. Let me continue to help you. It reminds me almost 50 years ago in the great days of boxing, 
Muhammad Ali, George Foreman, Ken Norton, Joe Frazier, those were the days. Those guys just kept going and boxing each other. It was just great. Well, about 50 years ago, George Foreman was fighting Muhammad Ali in Zaire. They called it the Rumble in the Jungle. And I want you to know Muhammad Ali was scared of George Foreman. And he had every right to be scared of Monster George. I've YouTubed that fight three or four times just to see if the outcome really stays the same. It really does. Muhammad Ali knocked out George Foreman. Couldn't believe it then, still can't believe How did that happen? But it happened. Muhammad Ali had always been saying, I am the greatest. Well, listen, he didn't skip a beat when he knocked out George Foreman. On the flight back to America, he was signing autographs. He was the MC of the entertainment, and it was going on, and they were now cleared for takeoff. A flight attendant said, sir, we've been cleared for departure. You need to buckle your seatbelt. Muhammad Ali and his arrogant braggadocio said, I am Superman, and Superman don't need to buckle no seatbelt. That flight attendant said, sir, Superman don't need no airplane. Now buckle up so we can depart. So what Jesus was doing right here with his indignation. Look at verse 25. But he called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. We won't even take time to deal with verse 25. We get that, right? It's the way of the world, which is also by and far the way of the church of Jesus Christ. Taking authority and wielding it, lording it over people, but that's not how it should be. Look at Jesus. That's what he says in verse 26. Catch it, child of God. It is not so among you. That's how it is in the world, and I know you know that. But, brothers, I got to tell you, it is not to be so among you. Look what he says. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Child of God, take this to heart. Jesus is instructing them in the true way of greatness. Whoever wishes to become great shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you, going right back, to the epitome of their craving. Whoever wishes to be first will not be a servant, but look at what our text says. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Being a servant causes you to be great. Being a slave causes you to be first. Now the difference between those two were diametrically opposed. A servant had rights. They had dignity. They served for a wage. They had freedom. They had honor. They were part of the family that they served. A slave, drastically different. They had no rights. They had no freedom. They had no wage. They were a tool that could be thrown away at the cost of their life to serve the one who owned them. 
Don't miss it, my friend. Jesus says, if you want to be great, be a servant. But if you want to be first, you're going to have to be a slave. Now look at verse 28. Notice what Jesus is doing just as. Jesus is saying with that, what is true of me needs to be true of you. What needs to be true of you is certainly true of me, just as the Son of Man. Are you as put out as I am with those who claim that Jesus never claimed to be God? How about trying on the Son of Man? Daniel 7, 13-14. Revelation chapter 1, 13-18. You see the Son of Man in all His glory, my friends. It's Jesus Christ. Christ knew who He was. And He says, just as the Son of Man did not notice this, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Jesus was doing the very thing. He had been a servant for three years, all the days of His earthly ministry, non-miraculously and miraculously serving the needs as He found them day to day. But on the last day of his life, he would leave service behind and he would become a slave. And it took him to the last day because that was the only day he could perform that service. When he gave up his life, he laid it down to become a ransom, a payment price to set free a slave. Jesus was not only a servant, but he was a slave. He knew what he was talking about, and that's what he was challenging his disciples with. Well, you say, okay, that's great, I get it. Three corrective insights regarding kingdom greatness. Kingdom greatness is a result of drinking the cup. Kingdom greatness has been determined by the Father, and kingdom greatness is equal to one's Humble service, I got it. But you know, I I think I'm fit to be just as the disciples were who stumbled and now they had these insights still failed to be the servant that they should have been. Can you help me with this? Now with this knowledge, I don't think I can be a good steward. Can you help me negotiate the trip from this day to the last day that I can truly know an ever-increasing humble service with the rest of the days of my life? Well, I think I can, but I'm going to have to do it quickly. Let me give you three helps along the way. If we're going to get it done, it's going to take these three things. Number one, a commitment to the Lord. Now, that sounds rather basic. And you say, check that one. Really? Really? Check that one? Commitment to the Lord? In in Luke chapter 9, Jesus said this to a man who said, Lord, I will follow you anywhere you go. Just permit me first to go back home and bid my family farewell. You know what Jesus' response to that was? He turned around and said, whoever puts his hand to the plow and is looking back is not fit for the kingdom. You know what Jesus was saying? A say-so commitment to me is not enough. It takes the real thing. You cannot put your hands to the plow and be looking back and think you're committed at the same time. That is not commitment to me. You can't come to me on that basis. You have to put your hands to the plow and you have to be looking forward. I'm talking about real commitment. 
Well, forget that bogus would-be disciple. Think of John the Baptist, one who was truly committed. John tells us, John the Apostle tells us in John chapter 1 about John the Baptist. He came as a witness so that all might turn to Jesus Christ. That was his role. He was a witness. And John the Baptist fulfilled his role. What a witness he was. John knew that and being a witness that he was a voice. And he was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the pathways of the Lord. And that's what he was doing. And he was out there in the wilderness and he was crying out. He was preparing the way to the Lord. How? Through repentance. And so when he saw the scribes and the Pharisees turning out for his baptism, he pointed to them and said, Who warned you, you brood of vipers, to flee from the wrath to come? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Oh, he was committed to the Lord. How dare he say that to the religious leaders of his day? But on the other hand, how dare he not say that to those who were not prepared for the Lord. John chapter 3 tells us that John the Baptist said this when his complaining disciples came to him. He said, teacher, everybody is leaving you and going to Jesus Christ. What was John's response? I know, isn't it terrible? Can you believe it? No, John said, he must increase, but I must decrease. Friend, that's commitment to the Lord all the way to getting your head severed from your body because you would tell the king the truth about the wickedness of his way. Secondly, not only commitment to the Lord, but expectation of hardship. Expectation of hardship. 1 Peter chapter 4 gives us a great big good word Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. He says, listen, the ordeal is fiery and it's coming your way. And when it comes your way, do not be caught off guard. Do not be caught unaware. Do not be surprised. When I played football in college, I was striving to be at that time a very competitive power lifter. I had already entered into two powerlifting contests, one in the state of Oklahoma and one in Region 8, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Missouri, and Kansas. Placed second in that meet, and I was really trying to, from that day forward, man, be a dominating power lifter. But the problem was I was right on the brink of starting college and playing football in college, and I could not keep that up. But my preparation to play football in college found me at a gym in the south side of Oklahoma, Ishiro Takahata's gym. And Ishiro had this power rack, a squat rack, best thing I'd ever seen. And my routine at that time was to squat Four reps of 10, four sets of 10 reps of 515 pounds, legal squats. I got to tell you, that is a crushing weight. And although I had done that, that was my normative routine. There were times when I would get under that squat rack, the bar, and take that thing up 
and immediately have to rack it because I was not ready. Oh, I could do it physically from the previous set, which I had done. Physically, I was ready. I had recovered, but in my mind, I wasn't ready. I'm telling you, that's what Peter is saying. This fiery trial that is coming your way, don't let it catch you off guard because if it does, you're done for. You can never respond as you should. Commitment to the Lord, expectation of hardship cannot surprise you. Thirdly, anticipation of ultimate joy. Jesus drank his cup and he drank it dry. But we know, do we not? There's so bitter was that cup in the Garden of Gethsemane. Three times we saw the Lord. Father, if it is possible that this cup could pass me by, let it pass me by. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. The writer of Hebrews helps us out right there where he tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God in glory. That even Jesus Christ could drink that cup and go to the cross when he anticipated the joy that was set before him. Child of God, you can't miss that. Your afflictions are going to be so severe and that cup is going to be so brutally bitter that if you do not think forward of eternity to come and how joyful it's going to be when you stand before Jesus Christ, it is over for you in this lifetime. You can retire from your role of service. You'll never get it done. My friend, humility is the currency of the kingdom. With it, you're rich. Without it, you're destitute. You're a beggar. Without humility, you only live in this world to be a reproach to Christ. Not to represent him, but to reproach him because you are nothing like him. With humility, you are on the path of true, eternal greatness. And that path is going to lead you to the judgment seat of Christ where you hear, well done my good and faithful servant. Join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. It has instructed us as it instructed the disciples in the day you uttered it. Lord, I just pray that we can get off to a better start than they. I pray that we too can drink our cup. Lord, that we will glorify you in the days of our lives that we will not only be in your kingdom, but we will possess the currency of the kingdom, which is humility. Humility that serves you, 
that glorifies you in our humble service. May it be so for your glory and your honor and our usefulness in these days. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.